Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This is ECM week on the jazz session. All the artists this week are from the ECM record label.、Uh, that label has been a big supporter of the jazz session since right since the show started. My third interview was with John Abercrombie,、uh, and my hundred and third interview. On the show is also with John. Another John from the ECM label, and actually who performs with John Abercrombie, is John Sermon, and he's on today's show.、Uh, but before I get to that, I just want to remind you about a contest going on every day this week, which is a giveaway of a compilation CD called "Anniversary Waltz," put out by the ECM label. It contains tracks from nine records that came out this fall or are coming out this fall. And it also it does include tracks from the Sermon and Abercrombie albums. Also, you can win a copy. I'll be giving away a copy every day.、Uh, just send an email to contest at thejazzsession dot com. That's contest at thejazzsession dot com, and put ECM in the subject line. And I will draw one person at random each day from the uh, contest uh, entrance. Okay, so good luck, and、uh, here's some music from John Sermon's album Brewster's Rooster. This is called Slanted Sky.
My guest is John Sermon. His new album on ECM Records is called Brewster's Rooster. And thanks so much for being on the show. It's nice to be here. You uh, you compose for so many different groups from choral groups to string ensembles. You've done solo saxophone performance. Are, are these things all kind of colors on your your palette that allow you to express different parts of your your compositional leanings, so to speak? Well, I, I couldn't and didn't put it better myself. It's <laughs> precisely the point of it all, really, that um, I, I've always enjoyed... You know the the difference, the possibilities of, uh, you know, of exploring different ways of almost uh, I don't say almost doing the same thing, but for me as a as a as a performer, I find it it's stimulating to be playing you know one day with a string group, and and then the next day maybe with brass. I'm, I don't mean literally the next day, but projects that move uh, in, in different with different textures because I think. I think it's one of the things that interests me very much is the difference in, you know, the different things you can do with different people and different instruments, and yet, you know, and, and yet still still be yourself, if you like. Well, that's a good, a, a good follow-up then, is how, how do you maintain a, a compositional identity when one day you're writing for a four-piece jazz quartet and the next day you're writing for a large ensemble of strings. How do you find yourself in that? Yeah, I'm not even sure that I'm conscious of looking for that. I mean, I, 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 you know, these things, of course, all these things happen over a period of time. It's not that you, you know, it's not that one day you think, oh, I'm going to write this and another day. It, you, first, for example, choral thing comes along. Uh, Salisbury Festival in England invites me to write a composition and they'd like me to use their festival chorus. Oh, that sounds exciting. I think, well, um, mm, and there's the great cathedral at Salisbury and I wander down there and I look up and I see the organ and think, oh wow, you know, this 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 instrument belongs here. You know, and, and I, I've always loved the organ because I started out as a choir boy, you know, singing. So then suddenly this, you know, I'm starting to hear a sound. I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, what would we feel like to play with a, you know, with a chorus and, and with the organ and so that piece takes form in that way, you know. Then maybe in a, a few years later or before, someone said, well, we'd like you to write something for string quartet. Now, I did that. I wrote for string quartet. I think I did it for a commission for something in Prague uh, and then in Czechoslovakia. And, and actually, I thought, when I did it, I thought, well, it's, all, it's okay, but... For me to work with this, I need something else. What I, and I thought, eventually I realized that a, good, a good, strong bass player, the jazz bass player, who could actually also work together with the strings. And that was how this string quintet thing that I used a lot has, was, you know, that idea came about. So these things aren't kind of, they don't arrive as if, you know, fully formed and as if with magic, but it's just simply that, you know, you get a, you get a proposition and things move in a direction, and you, 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 it sets the imagination alight, and then you start thinking about, you know, what would it feel like to play with that, and what would I, what, what would work, you know? Yeah, just from a craftsmanship angle, it, it sounds like a bunch of fresh challenges, because you have to know the ranges of the instruments for which you're writing. I mean, it seems like there's, there must be a fair amount of, of study and kind of learning that is involved at the same time as you're 
composing and being creative. Well, from the very beginning, I've always been fascinated by different musical instruments. I mean, when I started out and I was playing in the Dixieland band, I always wanted to try the banjo and I took one home and learned to play chord. I wanted to play the tuba and find out how that went and the trumpet. So I've always, and I think musical instruments by the, on their own are just beautiful objects, you know, aesthetically. They're amazing things to look at. Got French horns and harps and stuff. So funnily enough, I, I was lucky enough to interview... Uh, Sonny Rollins a few years ago because I did some programs for the BBC and uh, you know he said his first experience with the saxophone was his uncle's and he opened it up he must have been 12 you know somewhere between 8 and 12 opened it up and they saw this wonderful velvet lining and this golden instrument line and I had the same feeling about instruments so you see so when it comes to those things about range and knowing the instrument I've got I know how they work you know, so I will, you know, I'm, I do tend to, tend to know all the ranges of things. And, and I did spend three years at music college, most of which I wasted because I was out all night jamming <laughs> and playing blues and stuff. You know, so I, to be honest, my, my sort of formal music education, I slept through most of it. But um, some of it came in useful. But, you know, yeah, I think and I'm, I'm someone who kind of learns by, by working. And, you know, like I said, the first stuff I did for the string quartet, I wasn't too happy with. Unfortunately, nobody recorded it, so nobody knows how dreadful it was. But I learned an enormous amount from it. And you do by doing. The only way as a composer you learn to write is by writing stuff, hearing what it sounds like, and changing it. If you do it by the book, you just end up sounding like everybody else. But if you try and write your stuff and get it played, I always say that to students at college and everything, write something down, get your mates together and play it. And that's where you're going to find out what you've got. It must be incredible to, for example, stand inside Salisbury Cathedral, which I've never been inside, but and listen to the organ and the and the festival choir. I mean, it must just be incredible hearing people perform your music in settings like that. Yeah, I'd say you know that that's uh, I've I've done quite a bit over the last few years actually with organ because the chap who conducted that very first performance of a piece called Proverbs and Songs uh, it turned out to be a, a fantastic organist. He was a organ scholar at King's College, Oxford. And we ended up subsequently doing a number of things with organ and saxophone. And believe you me, you know, Coventry Cathedral and, uh, uh, and again in, in Salisbury. And we umpteen places we played. And, you know, it's really exciting because the acoustics of those places are great. I mean, I know they're often very echoey, but, you know, that's another thing. That's a skill to know how, what kind of music works in those environments. If you play a lot of cluttered chromatic music, you get jumbly sounds. If you let the music evolve slowly, the acoustic is beautiful.
Everybody always asks uh, jazz musicians about their their influences, which I usually don't do. But I have a feeling that if I asked you, you would tell me a lot of things that are not jazz um, that were really influential to you growing up, just listening to your music. Well, what what I would have to say about that is that you see, at the beginning of my musical experience, it was choir boy, choral music, classical music, with the family liking and enjoying that kind of music. Radio three. Rather pompous BBC, or even now we're going to hear Sibelius's Finlandia, you know, this kind of stuff. But I, that was the music that I enjoyed and grew up with. So, but it was only as a teenager then that I became aware of, of, of jazz. But it came in like a bombshell to me because here, you know, here my voice has changed, no more music in my life, not part, I'm not part of any music, and then suddenly here comes the music. That I can, that I somehow could relate to, that I could immediately start joining in with, even though I had a limited skill on the clarinet. I was learning, but you know, I'm playing the darn thing 25 hours a day, if you know what I mean. Sure. You know, and so I'm learning very fast. And and and, and luckily, there was a guy in Plymouth, my hometown, in the west of England, who had an import-export jazz record store, which was vital in the in the early 60s, end of the 50s, because. You know, we were importing all American jazz. You, you couldn't walk into a record store and find that. I was going to say, I guess it's vital and rare. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there I have, you know, and, and he was my university because I would go down there, get off school early. In fact, not often going to school some days, but uh, I can say that safely now. I don't think, I think it's too late for retribution to fall. And I would spend the afternoons just listening, and, and he introduced me to everything. When I, bought, when I found the baritone, he said, ah, you know, you should listen to this man. Of course, it was Harry Carney and Ellington, so I got to love that music. And he, he gave me a sense of historical perspective on jazz, which actually proved to be, you know, very useful to me not growing up with it. You know, I, I kind of heard, you know, evolution of it. You, you kind of heard how Louis drew, grew into Roy Eldridge, grew into Dizzy, and so on and so on. And all of that, you know, so I, I got that. I, it was a it was a late start, but you know I just fell in love with jazz and became you know, so fascinated with it. I just started to play it and wanted to make my life with it. Really. And so, did you incorporate the music that you had been listening to before jazz in those earliest days, or did it take a while to kind of? Come yeah, it back took into a you? long time before that emerged because I mean it, that didn't fit in at all with my idea even then. If I mean you know I wasn't going to sound like Sonny Rollins, was I playing uh, you know <laughs> Mozart? So you know that that. It, that felt alien to me, and it took me a while to realize, uh, you know, that some of the funny phrases and some of the funny things I was coming up with actually were me. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to learn, and I'm copying, and I'm trying to sound like, you know, my heroes, and it's not working. I'm not going to, and then sort of I'm starting to realize, well, hang on a minute, it, you know, it, perhaps that's not what I want anyway because when I start, when you listen to all the tenor players that I was listening to in the 60s and, and so on you know you, you could tell Johnny Griffin from the, Al Cohn from Frank Foster from the, every tenor player had a different sound Booker Irvin Eddie Lockjaw you know Dexter you know you, you'd, you'd know them all in a moment and I realised well wait a minute you know you, it's your, you have to find your own voice in this so I kind of relaxed a bit and said, well, I guess some of this daft stuff is, is actually me. And then I found, you know, working maybe in duo with a bass player, suddenly that became interesting. A different, maybe you took the drums away, it didn't stop being the music, you know? Or if you took the bass player away, 
just play with a drummer. It didn't stop things happening. In fact, more possibilities became possible. And so all that over a slow period of time, years and years, gradually you realise that there are other things you can do and then you, all these other melodic stuff starts to creep in and you realise a bit of an Irish jigger. Ah, well, we'll have a little bit of that now. <laughs> you know, why not? You know, it swings like mad, you know, and suddenly it works. So Now you've actually taken the bass player and the drummer away and you've spent a fair amount of time playing unaccompanied saxophone. What, what does that require of you and what does it offer to you well it's pretty scary when you walk out in front of the audience i can imagine I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> there's a classical violinist who once wrote i really envy these jazz musicians you know when i step out to play the tchaikovsky i have to put every finger in the right place every nuance everything it's really scary and i thought brother you don't know what it feels like to stand on the corner of the stage and find as you're about to walk out and find there's just nothing in your head at all you know and you're about to play a, you know <laughs> an hour set and you think oh well what am i going to play but um well of course when i did solo i then by that time i'm using synthesizers i'm i'd throw everything i can into the mix you know and effects and and all that kind of stuff so but it, what it is is um you know it, it's a different thing it's it's maybe it's more like being a painter or something you're on your own i mean but you do have an audience and that's kind of important to make sure that they're on your side so you know Look after your audience. <laughs> but if you can, you know, I do like to draw them in and, you know, engage them. But, I mean, anybody who's seen, for example, Bobby McFerrin work knows better than I do how to do that, you know. But that's, that's it's a bit scary, but it's fun. And different things happen, obviously. You're on your own, and so it's entirely up to you. But I, I, I must say that I enjoy, um, you know, more perhaps that dialogue with another. You know, that's the real fun of playing for me. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit and, and bring it home um, to the new record. Uh, can you talk about why you chose the particular people who are on this record and what they bring to that conversation? Well, you know, Jack is, is an obvious place to start because I, he, I've had the longest relationship with him of all. And we met in 68 when he was in London with Bill Evans. And we became friends then and worked sporadically. And Jack has, has a curiosity about music in all different, in many different fields. So he shares that with me, and you know he's not afraid of of uh, of, of actually trying anything with synths, and because uh, he's a fine keyboard player as well. So that makes duo with him fascinating because we both share this love of having different kind of textures and throwing the improvs in different places. And he's playing tabla and I'm playing flute and, you know, and, and then we're playing goodness knows what, you know, we're completely free and then we're playing a ballad, you know, so we've got that to and fro and, you know, we're not afraid to go out and, and with no plans and just listen to each other and create. And I feel this, exactly the same kind of thing with John, John Abercrombie in that sense of like, I, I know, you know, he's, he's got very strong roots in blues and, and, and rock and things, but he's also the, the, you know, the American songbook is under his fingers. And yet when you hear him, you don't really hear any of that, particularly what you hear is John Abercrombie, you know, and that's a unique, a unique gift, but he's a listening player and a giving player and a, a guy who's who can jump out and and grab the music, and a guy who can sit back and be a part of it. You know, that's a, this, those kind of skills are rare. I won't say they're rare, but they're not common. You know, they're they're composers as they play. Mm. And Drew, who I knew less, uh, 
Jack had said to me a few years ago, you should listen to Drew. He's a really good bass player. You'd like him. And I did, and I did. <laughs> and, you know, the more I've heard him, the more I like him, you know. And he's, he's, we're having a phenomenal time live working together. So because the first time I recorded with him and, or even played with him was uh, actually at the recording session for Brewster's Rooster. I just uh, just finished talking to John Abercrombie, and he said uh, one of the things that's enjoyable about these performances is the fact that they can take almost any direction, uh, even within a tune that you've just played the night before. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of allowing that kind of freedom, both in your compositions and with the other band members, to to steer the songs and in what direction they see fit? Yeah, well, that I mean, in choosing the material to use on this album. I, I suppose I thought long and hard about how to deal with that, and it, I knew perfectly well that what wasn't, what I didn't want to do was to try and pretend that this was a tight jazz quartet with a lot of hip arrangements, quick shifts here, and uh, and so on and so forth. It's not that. Uh, it never would be with two hours run through the day before. And besides. You know, what did I want that for when I'd got three really creative players? What I wanted to find were uh, a few little bits of material that had a clear direction or atmosphere and that were open to go, you know, that some of them have harmonic backgrounds, some of them have rhythmic backgrounds, but all of them are open to change. And I took a, you know, I took a hat full to the rehearsal and we played a few, some we didn't record and... and the others we did but the idea of it all really was just to allow that free flow of, of uh, expression you know that it's not you know I can't it's not going to be writing a drum part for Jack I could write till you know I'm you know I'm six foot under and I never come up with a quarter of the things that Jack comes up with on his own and the same goes for both of them really Many people who have been writing about this album, or that it's it's fairly new, but in the reviews that I've seen, have talked about it being a kind of a return to a more traditional jazz place for you. And I wonder, a is that was that your intention with this record? Is it even a good way to characterize it? What do you, how do you feel about that assessment of the of the album? Well, you know, 
Of course, it's, this is um, this has been pointed out also by ECM of saying, "Oh, you know, here's here now we're listening to a sermon playing jazz." But you see, for me, actually, it's more the format that suggests what I mean. Here I am recording with a guitar, drums, and bass. So yeah, well, it's gonna sound a bit more jazzy than when I'm recording with two violins, a viola, a cello, and a double bass, or with a you know, for me, I, I'm, I can't say I'm playing the same thing, but for me, the music is a continuum. The, the, the same values apply. When Howard's sitting up there in the organ loft, he's got the same kind of bits of material that say, Howard can say, well, I think today we'll pull out this stuff. Today we're going to give it one on the bass pedals. You know, it, the same thing applied with the string players. You know, they're, they're listening to what Chris and I as improvisers are doing, and they're, well, well, this passage is getting quiet. It's a little bit slower here, or we're in, and then we've got a free section here, and, you know, sometimes it's rhapsodic, sometimes it's, you know, aggressive. So it's the openness in the music I like, but I think what characterizes it as a jazz album is the fact that it's, you know, a rhythm section and me. So there, it sounds a bit more like jazz. Okay, you've uh, you've done quite a bit of work with uh, composing for kind of contemporary dance. Um, can you talk about why you enjoy composing for dance? Yeah, it's a it's you know, like any kind of theater music. It's, it's interesting because you're uh, you know you've got a partner in the music, but they're they you know they're not playing an instrument if you like you know. So I've always looked on the dancers who I have great admiration for. I've worked with actually with kind of what you might call straight ballet dancers, you know, toe dancers, and with uh, contemporary, contemporary dance people, you know, barefoot and, and so on. And wow, do they work hard? Oh, but they put us as musicians to shame. I mean, they're there at nine in the morning, stretching and bending, and it's physical. And the power and the strength in watching those, you know, the top class people work is, you know, you, you definitely feel you've got to come up with something for them. And uh, you know, it's just it's just really it's really great fun, and you learn so much about illustrating. Uh, you know, sometimes fast dance requires slow music, and vice versa. You know, you can have people moving slowly, and the music is frantic, and it's really powerful, and all the stations in between. So you know, I I really enjoy doing that. You know, and that inspirational actually. How how does it, I don't even know how it works to write for dancers. Do you do they choreograph a routine to music you've already composed? Do they give you an idea of how they're going to be dancing and you write for it? How, how does it even work? Well, um, let's put it this way: usually, a choreographer who will have heard music that I've done, and it, you know, and since as you we've already observed, you know, there are various you know sort of sermon areas that go on there. They'll probably say, "Oh, I like this." A lot of them have enjoyed the music of say. Um, you know, Rogers and Ives, or indeed Private City is an example of music, a lot of music that came from dance. And all the solo albums you've got, Upon Reflection, even some of the Simon Simon duo with Jack, um, Absalom Daw, uh I've forgotten the names of them, but uh, these solo stuff, a lot of them have been inspired in stuff that I've worked with dance. So the choreographers often come and say, well, we like that. So, okay. So I've got some idea of what area they're looking for you know i'd propose something there but in front nuts and bolts stuff generally if you've got like a group of dancers you'll need to keep certain things together like tempos and generally you know you can't you can't become totally free with it so i'll have certain backgrounds that won't change for them 
but I'll be improvising and I'll, I'll maybe uh, it'll be fresh every day what I play and then there'll be other areas which are completely improvised between maybe if it depends on the company but you know sometimes with a dancer solo dancer even a duo with with a horn you know I might even be on stage and play as a trio with them uh, you know and uh, so all those you know those techniques work we talked earlier about needing to know the ranges of instruments when you compose for instruments. Are there are there similar considerations when you compose for dance? You just mentioned one, for example, uh, repeating tempos or mm. rhythms. Mm. Are there are there similar kind of range issues or needing to know the nature of the the dancers or the company in order to write effectively? Well, you know, if you're doing a, a longish piece, uh, you need to pay attention to ins and outs, cues, mm. and this kind of thing. And I've got rather good at doing it standing at the back. And I know when I've worked with other musicians, they, they're, you know, they, what, what, where, what, where, how do you know that? You know, I don't know. I mean, I've just done it a lot. But there is, it is, you know, you learn, you learn the stuff and you learn the, I'm quite good at remembering cues and things, or used to be. It's been a few years, it's been about at least eight years since I've done it. And I don't know how the memory will stand up. <laughs> I uh, I have to say honestly that I I know next to nothing about uh, the British jazz scene, and I wonder well, what's it like. Well, it's 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 always been active. I think it's for me. Although a lot of people talk about the British jazz scene, I find it hard to disconnect the British jazz scene from Europe in general. Mm. To be honest, uh, although being an island, we do have an island mentality, and a lot of good players who are in England come up in England and uh, play in England and disappear in England, as it were. Uh, but, uh, you know, like throughout all Europe, there's, there are a lot of really good players. There's a big accent on jazz education everywhere. So you've got a lot of young players who are creative. Every year in England I do a, a particular workshop which features eight up-and-coming young players who are given a, a course in, in PR, in management, in booking, and in, they call it, uh, my classes, I think, composition or something, which, it's, which we don't really deal with at all. They, well, they all bring a tune and we all get together. But what it is really about, that I talk to them about, is working together. Relationships, how you get the best out of other musicians and this kind of stuff, the give and take and the nuts and bolts of actually being on the road, the hang-ups you get. Don't start the gig the day after, like the one that just finished. It's no good. It's a different room, different... All these kind of little wrinkles about playing. So I've dealt with eight up-and-coming players. I've done it for five years. So five, no, six years, six, eight, 48. I've seen 48 young players pass through my hands in the last five to six years, and they're outstanding, outstanding. So there's a lot of talent about, and I see it in Norway too, where I'm, where I am now. A lot of good players. I don't know what they're all going to do, but not they're not going to come over here, because it's too blooming difficult with the rules and regulations. And a lot of people have said, "Well, Mr. Sermon, why aren't you over here more often?" Well, I'm not here very often because it's blooming difficult to get here. Work permits are a nightmare. 
you, to apply for a work permit, you've got to have the job. But how can you get a job until the people know you can come there and play? So, you know, that's the first one. Try get, you know, we can leave it there for a start. I mean, if you want to do a rushed work permit, that's another $1,000. And then you've got to pay the airfare over. And get your and baritone all, saxophone and everything ah, else. Yeah, yeah, get your instrument around. Yeah, that's a nightmare problem. But, you know, the, the transatlantic thing is... I think that's, you know, and, and it's not an easy country even for, for American musicians working in the U.S. They're, you know, so it's it's difficult. It's it's difficult. Um, but then, as you say, in transport, travel now has become even more difficult with all the security and the cheaper airlines who are all they've got to do is they want to get their planes in the air. So if you've got a baritone, it gets off the plane in an awful hurry. And if that means throwing it off, Onto the cart, that's what happens. And it doesn't matter what kind of a case you've got it in, it's going to get wrecked. So rather than ending on air travel, I'll come back to something you just said. Um, so on, on uh, Brewster's Rooster, the same quartet that appears on the album is the quartet you're playing with at Birdland this week. And uh, you were just talking about instructing your students about the nuts and bolts of how a band works. Does this band, is it working differently? Is it evolving even in this short time from where it was on the album to what people are going to hear when they come to see the show oh yeah yeah absolutely it would be strange if with these guys it didn't i mean we're 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 (laughs) you these are guys who push it out to the edge every time so of course the further you get to the edge the more you know the or let's put another analogy we're we're climbing the hills and Mm. the further up you get the further ahead you can see so this is, you know, it's pushing the parameters further. And, you know, these are very creative musicians. So as uh, I think John Amber Crombie said to you in an earlier interview, um, you know, pieces that had, took one form on day one take another form on day two and day three. That's not to say that the piece on day four will be any better than the one on day two, though, you know. Sure. I mean, if you take chances, sometimes you trip up. and But we will take risks. And sometimes, you know... We fall over the edge and look over, and there's a wry grin exchange between them. Going, Whoops! <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> but that's you know that's fun. I mean, it's got to be fun to listen to as well. Yeah, and John said he was very excited about the direction that the band is going in, and he thinks now that you've had some chance to play together, it would be exciting to get back in the studio again too, and and kind of take another crack at at these four yeah. musicians together. Well, that's something to wish for, but um, <laughs> I don't know when I don't know when those guys will be available on the same day again. <laughs> well, my guest is John Sermon. His new album on ECM is Brewster's Rooster, features John Abercrombie, Drew Gress, and Jack DeJanet, and it's uh, been a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thanks very much. Thanks, for doing it's it. been fun talking to you too. Thank you.
That's John Sermon from his album Brewster's Rooster. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Each week I send out uh, an email to people who are on my mailing list. It just tells you what's coming up in the week ahead and lets you know about a few other things that are usually going on in the in the jazz world surrounding me or sometimes just surrounding me and have no jazz content whatsoever. But in any case, uh, the email comes to you one time a week and you can get it by signing up at thejazzsession.com. You can also get the exact same thing if you sign up for my uh, Facebook group. Just search for The Jazz Session on Facebook. And I also use both those venues to give away free music. The theme music for this program is by the Respect Sextet. They are online at respectsextet.com. They're also performing a lot uh, in and around New York uh, these weeks, so make sure you check their performance schedule and go see them. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo, and who may also be performing in and around New York. I'm not sure. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.